Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Dedham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. I'll be both a speaker and your moderator today. We're so very blessed you're joining us to learn how to keep your family safe. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Jennifer Dingman. Uh, Jennifer is the founder of the Persons United Limiting Substandard and Errors in Healthcare Pulse, better known as Pulse. Jennifer Dingman has been a longstanding contributor to the patient safety movement and quality movement. She has been our voice of the patient. Now this will be our 13th webinar or broadcast since the coronavirus crisis struck with this community of practice. And she's been a steadfast supporter of all that we're doing in quality, safety, and performance improvement. Of note is the fact that she is the 2018 uh, winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award, as is Chief Adcox and uh, Heather Foster, who uh, are, have all won this award in honor of Pete Conrad, the second man to the third man to walk on the moon. And we're very grateful to have Jennifer uh, be our voice of the patient today. She's a published author. She's been a contributor to multiple federal agencies. And I guess most noteworthy is she's part of a Saturday morning team that has met now for more than 12 years that was instrumental in bringing the hospital-acquired conditions, better known as the hacks, uh, in hospitals across the goal line, which led to tens of billions of dollars saved and hundreds of thousands of lives that have been saved. Jennifer, it's a real honor to have you kick us off today and set our course today, our, our compass heading for what we are to do. Thank you, Dr. Denham, for having me. I'm really excited to hear this webinar today. I've actually had the opportunity to know some, some long haulers here with this coronavirus and, and it's just no picnic for them. And it, it just really bothers me that this is happening to people in our country. I'm very grateful to Dr. Denham and this team for bringing forward these webinars. They're so educational. And I thank everyone for being here today. And I really strongly encourage you all to share the video of the, the uh, videos and also all of the past webinars with your friends, family, coworkers, colleagues, and everyone else that you know, your neighbors. And uh, just really excited to hear our speakers today and learn more. Thank you, Jennifer. We really appreciate it. So today we have a lesser number of speakers and reactors because of the topic, the complexity of the topic that we're covering. We've had as many as 24 in the past year with lots of contributions from uh, young people, young adults, uh, even teens, and many subject matter experts. We have Dr. Greg Boats, who I will introduce shortly, uh, Dr. Vaughn Masowski, uh, most people call her Dr. Vaughn, who will speak today, actually a sufferer of long haul disease, and a community pediatrician, Dr. Brittany Bartow-Owens. You've heard from Jennifer Dingman, and we will have uh, our leading nurse infection preventionist, who's been a fantastic contributor to the program as a reactor, and Chief Adcox, uh, the Chief Security Officer for MD Anderson Cancer Center and the University of Texas Police Department. So we're really blessed to have them. Our topic today are long haulers, loss, and caregivers. And there are a number of terms that are being used and the development of the names of the diagnosis of what happens with long haul COVID or long hauler uh, are evolving. Uh, PACS is post-acute COVID syndrome, sometimes called uh, post-acute uh, sequelae of COVID, which would, P, which would be PASC. 
MISC is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children where two or more organ systems are involved over the long term over the long term with inflammatory conditions. And the same thing is being seen in adults and has been coined MSA. I think over time, we're going to see more and more diagnoses uh, and names and classifications. However, uh, today we'll just talk about long haul COVID knowing that the medical descriptions are going to evolve. This is a series of a number of family survive and thrive guides that started out with our development of a program for first responders and the 16 industry sectors who represent those that have to work no matter what through the lockdowns, they're the critical essential workers. And we started out with, um, with coming home safely. We talked about keeping your kids safe. We talked about what to do uh, to get your uh, family member to uh, the emergency department, how to put safety plans together, what to do if your family's in the ICU. And so this is part of a series. And our three big opportunities right now are to save lives right now with behaviors that we can undertake then along the reopening bridge, whether we have surges or not, it's, we're yet to be seen whether we're going to have outbreaks across the country or a big surge uh, or whether we'll have outbreaks, but then at our new normal. And so this is, uh, this is the curve from the, uh, the Institute for Health uh, uh, Metrics uh, uh, from uh, uh, University of Washington. And the question is, uh, do, do we, do, are we going to have just a plateau of deaths? Are we going to have another surge? We don't know with the variants, but we do know that there's a lot of work that has to be done. Now, our MedTAC program that is the foundation that was built, uh, that th this coronavirus community of practice was built on started six years ago. In, uh, and uh, Chief Adcox, who you'll hear more from, and Dr. Boats were active participants in developing this uh, program. MedTAC is medical best practices and tactical best practices merged together. That's a group of uh, uh, actually Cub Scouts, and my son is one of them, that we started with to see if we could, we could teach them CPR, stop the bleed, and how to deal with active shooter events, and it turned out we could. The teacher that you saw on the page was uh, the fellow that saved the first life within the first seven weeks of the program. I won't belabor it because we wanna jump right into long haulers, but for those of you that wanna know more about the MedTAC program, we've had a series of Campus Safety Magazine articles that have been co-written with Chief Adcox and Dr. Boats. Uh, and uh, the most recent one you'll see um, uh, regarding plans for families. And we'll be covering a new article that'll come out on emerging threats. For those of you that don't know us, over the last 35 to 37 years, we've developed a, a, a network of 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities. And over time have had a subject matter expert pool of doctors, nurses, pharmacists, uh, administrators, medical uh, technologists, EMTs, respiratory therapists, risk managers, as well as uh, a number of other subject matter experts in IT, information technology, et cetera. And uh, this is just representative of what 500 people looks like. And we're very grateful to be able to call on them. Uh, now, in March of last year, we assembled a 60-member team to have a rapid response approach to the COVID crisis and to focus on critical essential workers. It's now grown to over 100, and it includes a number of noteworthy experts you see on the second row there, Sully Sullenberger and Jim Collins and my, uh, my dear friend and partner in many things, uh, Professor Christensen from Harvard, 
but Dr. Don Berwick, the former head of the, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, Dr. Koh, who was the assistant uh, um, uh, secretary of public health, Jim Bajan, the astronaut and leading uh, uh, patient safety leader, and Dr. Harvey Feinberg, who's held many positions uh, in our national infrastructure for public health. What we were able to do was we were able to take clips and video from our prior Discovery Channel films to create the curriculum that now is a body of now after today will be 23, uh, 23 courses that we've put together for these essential critical infrastructure workers. Um, basically, if you said, well, what did you find out? And we found out that and we believe that where the action was was family transmission chains that that workers could be protected at work, but where they were frequently being exposed to the virus and would come down with the disease and then long hauler disease was through their families. We believe that if you could save the family and, and educate the family on transmission, that you could save the worker. If you could save the worker, you could save the nation. So our focus has been to break family transmission chains in prevention. And so if we have time during our program today, we will finish in 90 minutes. However, we may go a little bit, we'll go a little bit longer on our on-demand because we have doc, uh, Dr. Boats covering the new guidelines that pertain to how vaccinated people can behave and what we do about masks. And so for those that are watching online, you'll be able to see it. For those that are watching live, uh, you may have to come back to watch the rest of it because we don't want to go over 90 minutes. So we created a website, we've created uh, basic modules of videos that are three or four minutes up to 10, 15, even 20 minutes, but then advanced uh, modules with the courses that I've described. Our most recent program, because of vaccine hesitancy, is a program with um, a terrific group of young, young people, uh, youth, uh, college students, and young adults. It's called Take the Shot, Save a Life. It is uh, a community service project in order to, for young people to have the conversation about vaccinations or the vaccination conversation. Why vaccinate? Why you? Why now? Uh, we have a tremendous number of wonderful students, faculty, and alumni from these great organizations. Uh, and we're growing uh, with every week with additional uh, representatives uh, of these organizations, either students, faculty, or alumni. And we have a group of coaches, and these are our coaches, and we're adding them every week, who will be coaching high school students about having the vaccination conversation because vaccine hesitancy is such a critical issue and our young people and those that are vaccine hesitant are critical. Now, we're not going to pick a fight with those that don't want to be vaccinated. The definitely no group are not our target. It's the movable middle. Those that just wanna have answers to questions that have some doubts and worries and will be able to provide the science complemented by the stories of the students and their, and their communication to young people. So it's a community service project for high school students and college students to reach out through their families again and their, and their close friends to help accelerate uh, uh, vaccination. So uh, we're right on time. And I just wanted to introduce that program. You'll see more of it in our next webinar. So let's talk about long haulers. Well, the first thing to know is that we're not out of the woods yet and that the, the variants are critically important. The variants have uh, three things we need to know. Number one is, are they more transmissible? Are they more contagious? The second thing is that we need to know, um, th that we need to know, are they more lethal? And the third thing we need to know is, will they ex escape the vaccines 
And will the antiviral agents work as well on them as they did the original uh, virus? And there's science being generated every single day. Now, this just came out. This is uh, an article from Medscape, and we put our sources at the bottom of the page there so that you can see it. And the, this is a trending topic on Medscape. And it, it looks to, according to a new study, the researchers found that neutralizing ability of the monoclonal antibodies was markedly or completely abolished. We do know that uh, we're probably going to have to develop new vaccines and booster vaccines. You'll see in a minute of another uh, something in the news. I always start these webinars with what's in the news and what might be most important. So we've got to be really, really concerned about these variants. That's why we've got to get vaccinated, and that's why we need to maintain our precautions or our safe practices. Um, so it's important to know that the mRNA vac uh, vaccines are four to seven times less effective against the P1 variant. That's the one in Brazil. However, they still appear to offer an important cushion of protection, according to Dr. Fauci. The B1351, which comes from the UK, that comes from South Africa, uh, was more concerning. It was 86 times less effective with AstraZeneca and eight, uh, six to eight times less effective with, uh, with the uh, current mRNA vac vaccines, which are the Pfizer uh, and the Moderna vaccines. So it's important to watch that. Now, Moderna reports, and this just came out, this is just, and we try to give you the latest news, Moderna reports that its booster doses of COVID-19 vaccine appear to be effective against the variants. And so when our, our vaccine developers are not sitting on their hands, they're working very hard to help us stay ahead of the variants. And so we just need to watch, uh, watch that. So enough for the news. Uh, there, if you wish to we'll listen to the whole congressional testimony regarding long haulers, you can go to the link at the bottom of this slide. Uh, one of my heroes is Francis Collins, who is the uh, head of the NIH. He has been a steadfast, positive, and optimistic, but very serious scientist. As you know, he, as you probably know, a, a great leader in mapping the human genome. And he, you can see from the quote that we put on the slide, <clears throat> I can't overstate how serious the issue is for the, law, for the health of our nation. <clears throat> he says an estimate is that as many as 3 million people could be left with chronic health problems, even after mild COVID infections. So one of the myths is you have to get really sick to get long haul disease. Not true. Many, many, in fact, in some cases, more uh, of those that are being treated in the long haul clinics are being treated having had mild disease. Uh, Collins said his estimate was based on studies showing that roughly 10% of people who get COVID could have long-haul COVID-19, and we don't know enough about it. So, so far, and this is as of April 28, seven days ago, um, uh, so far, more than 32 million Americans are known to have been infected with the new coronavirus. And so you'll see some videotapes that we're going to share regarding this. Now, I'm not going to go into the deep complexity, but, I, but if you wish to, to read in more detail, an excellent article in Nature Medicine, and the graphic you see before you actually maps how, how easily we can detect the virus, when we have the test that is the gold standard, the RT-PCR test is positive, uh, and but then the organs and you see uh, over on you see on the right column 
you see the symptoms that you're going to hear more about in some of the videotapes that I'm going to play, but you see fatigue and cough, dyspnea is shortness of breath, anxiety and depression, uh, palpitations is feeling your heart beat rapidly, uh, thromboembolism or blood clots, and chronic kidney disease. So all of these organ systems can be affected by the long haul phenomenon. And you're going to hear more beautifully described by Dr. Boats, our partner. So this is a, on, on, um, uh, on this slide, you can see that uh, we've just blown that graphic up for you to come back to. And I, I highly recommend if you're very interested uh, to read the article, an excellent article that kind of addresses and provides more detail uh, regarding these issues. And so it's really important that we recognize that thromboembolism or blood clotting is a manifestation of COVID and the risks to our family members uh, are enormous from COVID. And this often gets confused out on the web regarding the blood clot, very small potential for blood clots that could happen um, in, um, uh, you know, with, with the vaccines that have been reported. And we, we thought we would show you another video right away, even though it's about children, and we'll come to Dr. Bartow, who will talk in more detail about kids, but just so that we can see the uh, comparative and actually see how similar this is in kids, but then there are some really good signs and symptoms that we need to watch, uh, watch for. Um, this is a much shorter video and it basically addresses uh, this condition. And another thing that wasn't covered was that uh, this condition of long haul can come in waves where you get better for a while and then all of a sudden get worse and then get better and then get worse. And, and we're seeing that in more of the studies. Uh, in this particular article and the video clip that I'm just going to show, we'll talk about kids and then we'll go uh, to Dr. Boats. It's scary, it's sad, you question, and you, you, you don't understand the whole concept of everything that's occurring. Carla Magrini's 15-year-old son, Jaden, got COVID back in January, spent six desperate days in the hospital at St. Barnabas. After a harrowing battle with the virus, Jaden went home, and his family figured he'd beaten COVID, recovered. It was like a sigh of relief, like my son is home, he's fine, he's healthy, he's never had any health issues, um, but then we started picking up, I think, on little things. Carla says symptoms snowballed. Her straight-A student hit a wall. I think it was the brain fog, the forgetfulness, confusion. Um, and the biggest thing was definitely his grades with school. That was like my biggest like aha moment. Parents call confused and very, very worried. Nurse navigator Lauren Thrand works at New Jersey's only clinic at St. Barnabas that helps families cope with pediatric long COVID where kids who seemed fine suddenly find themselves fighting the delayed after effects of their COVID infection. We've heard many times, well, maybe kids don't get as sick or they get sick, but they recover and they're fine. And then you have a parent who sees their child, knows their child the best, and they're saying, well, my child's not fine. What's going on? We thought, oh my gosh, uh, you know, there is definitely a need to create awareness in, in, in the community around us. Director Dr. Uzma Hassan says the clinic's treating and tracking about 90 young long COVID patients. She says even kids who initially experienced mild or even no COVID symptoms can suffer a sudden onset of long COVID. One case involves a young athletic dance student. 
she's struggling to get back on her feet. She's having episodes of dizziness where she feels like she's going to fall. She's having heart palpitations. She is anxious, depressed out of her mind, and feels like she has word-finding difficulty. Kids show the same symptoms that impact adult long COVID patients, among them mental fog and physical impairment of heart and lungs. The clinic does a careful examination and can direct young patients to more than a dozen specialists, like pulmonologist Stephanie Zandia. She's seen star athletes benched short of breath. They're like, I could run two miles, no problem, but now I have to stop after like five minutes and catch my breath. Kids who got very sick initially from COVID may have scarred heart muscle, according to cardiologist Rajiv Verma, with serious implications. High school, uh, college athletes, and the consequences of whether we will have to limit their activities and monitor them there. So how long is long COVID in kids? Doctors say they don't really know. It could last for weeks. But with kids, there is some good news. Although you're experiencing symptoms now that are frightening and discouraging, it's not like this always, and it won't be like this always. Kids have this remarkable ability to recover. They're very resilient. So far, Jersey's logged 18,000 COVID cases among kids up to age 4 and almost 87,000 in kids aged 5 to 17. Severe cases of COVID-related MSIC, multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, top 100 in New Jersey, but no kids are now hospitalized and no children died of the syndrome. Doctors at RWJ Barnabas, an underwriter of NJ Spotlight News, expect more cases. Full vaccination for children is not going to be for, for several, several months. Schools are opening up, activities are opening up, and we think there's going to be some more infections, unfortunately. Vaccinations have helped some adult long COVID patients recover. Carla hopes to get Jaden and all of her kids vaccinated. I think we have a, a road ahead of us, and I want him to get back to him 100%. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. So as we, uh, so we can see that this is also striking kids. And again, the issue is, is that they're not the most serious cases that many can have mild disease and then get a very serious COVID. Uh, this uh, article this week actually addresses how symptoms may appear in a, in a specific order that long haulers may experience the fatigue and the body aches and the shortness of breath and the difficulty concentrating and headache. Uh, and the first symptoms may be the flu-like fatigue, headache, fever, and chills. And again, the waves of disease are particularly interesting. So Dr. Gregory Boats is in ICU today, uh, which he is on Thursdays. We're very blessed to have him as our clinical team lead on NetTech, who over the last six years, uh, a fabulous uh, critical care doctor uh, who has dual appointments at MD Anderson uh, University of Texas as a professor of anesthesiology and critical care, as well as an adjunct clinical professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, where he commutes and then teaches residents and nurses and medical students uh, about critical care and acute care. Uh, Dr. Boats uh, is uh, a real champion of the MedTech program and really came up with a number of the ideas that we put to work. He's also the chief medical officer for uh, Chief Adcock's police department at the University of Texas in Houston. And so we're very blessed to have uh, Dr. Boats. We're going to have Dr. Boats speak for a few minutes and then we're going to hear from Dr. Vaughn who actually is one of our physicians uh, at MD Anderson who has experienced the uh, long haul. 
So we'll listen to Dr. Boats now. Dr. Boats, thank you again for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, tell us about these long haul syndromes and what's really important to families and to uh, those of us that even get mild disease. Well, what we're learning now, many months into the COVID pandemic, is that not only do people have risks of the acute infection with respiratory problems predominantly, uh, but now we're seeing some people, a small subset of those who have had COVID who are having long-term persistent symptoms that can last weeks to months after their primary infection. And so uh, as we look at these uh, illnesses, what's going on in the organ systems? It seems that the COVID infection is two major events or major time periods. The first is the infection with the virus and its replication in the body. And the second is the body's response with an inflammatory response, our usual response to uh, a bacteria or a virus that gets into the body. And what we're seeing in the, the long COVID uh, period is uh, an exaggerated and prolonged inflammatory response that affects various organs. So uh, as a critical care doctor, uh, how important is this and what goes on in the lungs and the heart? Well, fortunately, the overwhelming majority of people with long COVID symptoms don't require ICU admission. They have sort of smoldering symptoms in organ system dysfunction, but they can be very uh, very important and distressing to patients. They can have persistent uh, low-grade fevers and cough. Um, they can have uh, difficulty breathing at some times. Um, and even uh, sometimes they can have fast heart rates and a low-grade fever that seems like um, a, a smoldering infection. So, and we understand even mild disease that patients may have uh, can be associated with long-haul disease. So it doesn't appear that it's directly can be, but not directly related to the severity of the first infection. Is that a fair statement? Well, that's right. Uh, we are seeing the long COVID syndrome in people who have had mild, moderate, or severe disease. We think that perhaps some of the people who have had severe disease requiring hospitalization or even ICU stay, uh, their persistent symptoms may be uh, the long haul COVID syndrome or maybe the sequelae of being in the ICU requiring life support. But we're seeing this long haul, long-term COVID syndrome in people that had very mild symptoms that were um, not significantly affected, uh, but then have after a few weeks, the onset of this inflammatory response with symptoms that persist for days and weeks, sometimes even months. So what's your message to young people regarding vaccination as a motivation to not have long haul disease and those that are excited about their sports and athletic performance in the future? Can that be impacted by this respiratory and cardiac long haul syndrome? Uh, certainly your physical performance, your ability to uh, perform at an optimal level in sports or other activities can be significantly affected by the long-term or the long-haul COVID 
syndrome. Vaccination is very important. It's one part of the armamentarium that we have to try to manage the infection in our communities, but also to try to mitigate the infection and consequences in any person who might be exposed. So next we have actually one of our team at MD Anderson, uh, one of our critical care doctors. Uh, many people can't pronounce her last name, so we'll call her Dr. Vaughn. She's a assistant professor, Department of Critical Care, Division of Anesthesiology and Critical Care at the University of Texas. More importantly, you'll hear that she is also a leader of, uh, of their program for emergency preparedness and uh, really has to be on her game in terms of uh, what she does both for critical care patients, but also for MD Anderson. And so we'll have, uh, we'll hear from her about the journey and her journey as a, a long haul patient. Dr. Vaughn, thank you so very much for sharing your experience with us uh, through the COVID uh, journey. Can you first off tell us what you do at MD Anderson, your role and your background? Um, so at MD Anderson, I'm a critical care physician. I work in the ICU. Um, I'm also the emergency readiness officer. So I work on the clinical manage the clinical aspects of our emergency preparedness, which includes not only disaster preparedness, but but leading our emergency medical response teams, which includes our rapid response teams and our code blue teams throughout the institution. So we have, since we're an institution, not just one hospital, we have a, a pretty large footprint throughout the city of Houston and surrounding areas. Fantastic. So tell us about the acute phase of your COVID experience before we talk about the long haul aspects of it. So the acute phase. So, you know, acutely, I thought I was having the usual seasonal allergies for a couple of days. Um, and then just started feeling bad. And at our institution, we are able to actually do asymptomatic testing um, every couple of weeks um, if you want to do that. So I had initially signed up for asymptomatic testing because, um, you know, I had having been on inpatient and just wanted to make sure everything was okay. But in the 24 hours before I had that appointment, um, I started developing you know, pretty severe fatigue, and then actually had a low-grade fever um, the day that I went in for that testing. So I had a positive test the next day. I was still really was convinced I had the flu, I have to say. Uh, had a, came a positive test the next day. It took about 24 hours. This was early in everyone's testing, so the turnaround time was longer. Uh, I had... Then started developing that difficulty breathing, um, intermittent fevers, body aches and chills. But I would say that really, you know, that was about 10 days. I had paid attention to everything, had my own pulse ox, had myself quarantined in, in my area, in my house. And if my SATs would go down, I would just prone myself for a few hours, um, did things like that. And like I said, really just sort of was a shut, shut in. I have a, a son who is in high school. He had to stay home just because of the contact. So he really had sort of free reign of the house and did, and did remote school during that period. About 10 days after the official test came back, I was feeling better. 
and was ready to go back to work. Um, the first day I came out, I was tired, which is expected. I, I probably worked four, four or five hours and, and went home, didn't want to push things. The second day I came in, uh, I did a, walking over to a different area of the institution and, and just didn't feel right. Realized that my heart rate, luckily I could look at it on my watch. My heart rate had gone up to about 140 and I was having some difficulty breathing. I didn't check my finger pulse ox or anything else. So I went home, planned to stay home the rest of the week and, and work from bed, but just because there's just so much television one person could do. Over the next 36 hours, my blood pressure was going up because uh, I do have a home blood pressure machine. So I was checking that and my heart rate was, I was sitting still. And even after having taken my usual dose of a blood pressure medication, I still had dangerously high blood pressure. Uh, and my heart rate was just at rest, 140 to 150. So my heart was racing when I wasn't doing anything at all. At that point, I had been touching base with my primary care physician who had talked about, you know, looking for things like um, tachycardia, hypertension after this and initially, and I had thought I was through that. And this happened enough um, that I was really scared um, that it, that one evening was a very scary evening. And it was hoping that nothing happened to me through the night and saw her the next day and started addressing sort of these symptoms to try to figure out where things were going. And so since then, I've taken a beta blocker to help with that heart rate, um, added blood pressure medication, um, inhalers, all sorts of things, because things almost got worse in a different way than they had when I had that first initial course, the COVID. And that lasted this, now we're in, you know, I was diagnosed mid-October. This is probably three weeks later, early November. Had thought I was going to be able to go back to work, which was uh, and see patients and care for patients, which was crazy. And like I said, I did the rest of my work from bed uh, because I needed some mental stimulation, but it was hard. My brain would get tired. I'd still need to take naps. And so I'd say November and December were sort of this using the inhalers, um, bought myself some home respiratory therapy equipment to use. Thank goodness you can get those things online now. Continued with the medications had had a, a CT scan of my chest to make sure that there weren't any blood clots there and, and had, it had an echocardiogram. You know, there had been sort of this discussion in Houston, we really don't, didn't have that many COVID clinics set up like the East Coast has done. And so there was that discussion of, do you do more testing and everything? And, and that was sort of on the table waiting for some other results. And so now, now I'm in, in January. I will say that when I was on meetings, in November and December, my mind would just go blank. That whole brain fog, I would be talking and in the middle of a sentence couldn't remember what I was doing. I had to take more and more notes to try to function at a meeting. If I was gonna speak on to a large group, I actually would write out what I was gonna say. I looked down because I had post-it notes lined out so that I could read everything I was gonna say. And so in January, realizing that was still a problem. The heart rate was calming down a little bit, but would sort of go through these swells and when that would happen. And that was the biggest thing. I had gotten to a point that I was, uh, had been prior to COVID bicycling, um, using an indoor trainer for two hours at a time, 
Um, I'm not a runner, but was walking pretty, you know, would walk five miles at a time, sometimes 10. Uh, I would go up my stairs at home and get tachycardic and couldn't do anything. So, uh, you know, I had to be sedentary and that, that was kind of, uh, that was very upsetting because I had felt like I had gotten myself back in physical shape before this had all happened. Of course, that probably helped me during the acute course. And mid to late January, CDC did a webinar where all these groups from the Northeast started talking about their experiences with what was happening. Because there is that part of you that wonders if you're crazy. And am I about to become one of those people? And one of the sample cases they presented was me completely. Brain fog, tachycardia, um, intermittent shortness of breath for no reason, and it, you know, in, in these times when it would just hurt to breathe. And one of, and some of the biggest things I took out of there was when they said you need to quit running tests, like quit running the exams. We realized that you don't get anything extra out of doing more scans and more in stress tests and cardiac tests, and you need to treat the symptoms and work with people. And that was just the hugest relief I'd had. And then I started talking about the brain fog and being on stimulants to assist with that. So I had been on a stimulant prior to COVID for ADHD and had not taken it during the acute course when the tachycardia had gotten worse, it stayed off of it. But at that point, speaking with my PCP, it was, let's see what that does. Let's monitor what happens and see if this can help with some of these neurologic problems. And slowly did that, which, which really just increased my ability to put two and two together, to work more than a couple of hours at a time. I could tell when it wore off because at that point my brain was completely tired. But I will say that it took until the middle of February where I felt like I could put things together for an entire day and really work at um, probably not the level I was at before, but felt like I could remember things. I could speak coherent sentences. I wasn't always worried about what was coming out of my mouth. And that was mid-February. Since that time, you know, you, I kept thinking things will get better. Let's start weaning things off, but it's been a roller coaster. Um, I'll go through a week where everything's okay. And then we go back to all of a sudden my chest hurts from, from walking a block or I get, I'm short of breath from going up the stairs. Last week I did 25 sit-ups and my heart rate went to 145, wow. you know? So it's this long-term of having to realizing as my PCP said, you know, I, I know you were really happy with what you were doing before, but please don't be offended, but maybe you need to start looking at sit and be fit, you know, which kind of was a little bit, you know, I can't believe you're telling me to do something that we have 80 year olds do in a chair. And, and so those things are really hard to do, but the biggest thing has been now that continue on the medications, don't wean yourself off. For the next, at that visit, it was, you know, for the next four to six months, we're keeping you on inhalers. Um, we're going to keep you on increased doses of blood pressure medicine and, and doing that boost of a beta blocker to work on the heart, heart rate so that we can support your body titrating what I need from a stimulant 
to help with the brain fog, let me function for longer during the day. The other thing that I don't know if people really talk about is the effect that this has had on my son. He gets very worried when I start coughing. I have a more continue or a more prominent dry cough. You know, I always sort of had one from post-nasal drip from allergies. It's that time of the year in Houston, but that had happened, but it's a different cough. And he gets, you know, almost upset when I cough and it's because he's worried I'm getting sick again. There are times when he, you know, says, if I'm really tired, are you sick? Do you have a fever? Are you getting COVID again? What's happening? And so, you know, he's, he's watching, he's worried about those pieces. And so it's that effect. I don't know if everybody thinks about it. And, you know, in the back of your head, I've known people a, a few months out who had bad outcomes, major, major blood clots, um, somebody who died under kind of mysterious circumstances that are probably related to the fact that they had had COVID six weeks prior and other things like that. And so you do start thinking about what what could happen and have, you know, also in that part engaged counseling, just so it's sort of, sometimes I start dwelling on this and, and to get through those pieces also. Worrying about, and I am back in patient care for short periods of time, but am I gonna miss something? And so spending extra time looking at everything because you don't want to be the reason that something happens to a patient. Now, I will say I've felt I feel really good when I'm on service and I do that. But there are those concerns in the background before I, I started doing like a period of continuous days. I, I really said, holy cow, what's going to happen? And I had to have a plan for if my brain gets tired, how do I call that time out and say, I can't I can't work this stretch. So this is a uh, so uh, this is part of a longer interview that we will post uh, on uh, on our uh, website and really give you some insights as to what actually is is going on and what the experience is with the journey and we're so grateful uh, that Dr. Vaughn has uh, has shared her personal story with us so I recommend watching the entire interview and you could gain some uh, further insights regarding what. Uh, uh, what goes on and uh, and this this long term journey. She mentioned uh, a few terms that I want to make sure for those that are not clinical. Uh, she mentioned pulse ox, meaning that's a pulse oximeter. It measures the oxygen in the blood. She talked about prone myself, which was uh, which refers to laying on your abdomen because we know that the blood and the and the lungs uh, can uh, optimize the oxygen, oxygenation and the air exchange between uh, oxygen and carbon dioxide when we lay on, on our abdomens. Tachycardia was the rapid heart rate that she described, and a beta blocker is a medication. She also talked about her PCP, which was her primary care physician. So I encourage you to, if you wish to hear more about her story, to watch it on our website. I'm going to shift gears for a moment now and have uh, Dr. Brittany Owens-Barto, who's been a MedTech advisor from the very beginning. She's a community pediatrician uh, who I've known since before she was in medical school, uh, provides some excellent insights from the practical perspective regarding children. 
Brittany, many thanks for your time today to help us really understand what's going on in children and the long haul disease, uh, what we need to know and uh, how it's treated over time. So can you talk us through the acute phase of COVID in children and then take us through those who get um, uh, MISC or get long haul symptoms? Sure. So with the acute COVID infection, we know that a lot of kids have very mild symptoms, especially the younger ones. They'll have what you think of as maybe just allergies or mild cold, cough, congestion, about 50% get a fever, and they're usually well pretty quickly. As you get more into the teenagers, they tend to have a little bit more fluy symptoms, maybe like belly pain, vomiting, and diarrhea, headache, aches, where they'd say, I feel like I have the flu. Um, after that happens, you know, it seems like most resolve, but a couple of weeks, maybe three to four weeks later, a small percentage of kids will get the MISC, which is sort of a immune response, not an infection itself, but your body responding to the infection and mostly causing rash, fevers, and a lot of GI symptoms like belly pain, vomiting, diarrhea, and they look very, very bad, right? These are kids that are going to the emergency room anyways, and you find out there that they have MISC. There is you know, a new thing that we're, we're not something that's new, but something we're realizing is more common in kids than we thought. We've been talking about long haulers and adults like for a while, um, but we are noticing that a significant number of kids have been getting it too. A UK study showed about 15% of kids were still having symptoms more than five weeks after infection. And some studies in Italy have that number even higher, like almost up to 50% that were having symptoms months afterwards. Um, a lot of them were having things like fatigue, GI upset, like belly pain, um, as well as some chronic chest pain, headache, and um, like difficulty breathing or shortness of breath. So, you know. Um, so for those that do have this persistent uh, complex of things, they could have had a mild disease and then still have the long haul. Is that correct? Yes. So they've actually found that a lot of kids were having these very mild diseases, like what I described earlier, Hatton and having these very prolonged symptoms. It's similar, you know, you know, in terms of viruses with long haul, it's similar to something like mono where teenagers get it and they can have symptoms for months afterward. So it's not completely un uncommon to have it in a virus, but we are finding that COVID seems to be like that type of infection. They can have very persistent symptoms. What's your advice to parents when they think that they're they're getting the acute phase? Are you uh, in really encouraging testing, I presume? Absolutely. Um, so we're recommending testing if they're having symptoms in school, like especially if they're in school or in daycare, or if they've even been exposed since there is a large number of asymptomatic carriers. So if there's a significant exposure, we're recommending testing five to seven days from the exposure, even if you don't have symptoms or any time while symptomatic. And those are RT-PCR tests that you would encourage? Correct. So the rapid test is helpful if you're having symptoms, but it's not as accurate if you're asymptomatic. So we always do the PCR test. Great. So what advice do you have for parents of children uh, regarding treatment if they were to get the long haul disease? Is, uh, are you recommending rest and uh, a lot of uh, uh, supportive sort of uh, things that they can do? What, what do you recommend for families to do if they were to get these persistent symptoms? So yes, it, there isn't anything we can do to treat it aside from letting your body recover from it. If you're having 
persistent symptoms that are really affecting your life, there's the option to try to go to a tertiary care center that is starting to take more care of that. So we're close to CHOP um, and they are seeing a little more than that. So you're finding some centers that are offering a little bit more support for those kids, but it's just a lot of rest to try to recover from the infection. Right. How much different is MISC from MISA, the same sort of phenomenon in adults? I'm, I'm not very familiar with the phenomenon in adults, actually. So uh, the last question is really regarding uh, vaccinations. It's exciting to hear that we'll likely have uh, approval uh, of the vaccines for those that are 12 through 15 years of age, which really increases our eligibility. What are your thoughts? I am very, very excited. I heard a rumor that it's going to be approved next week, which would be amazing. So that would be like part of junior high and high school. I'm encouraging all my patients 16 and up to get their vaccines this second. And when it is approved, I'm going to be encouraging everyone to get their vaccines that are 12 and up. It's very, very exciting. So if a parent were to ask, are they safe? Do you feel comfortable that the data supports that the vaccines will be safe for the 12 to 16 year olds? Yes, um, I am. I'm confident in the system we have set up in the United States to approve these um, vaccines, and I I believe in the safety based on you know the U.S. reports. Fantastic. What advice do you have to families regarding those that are vaccinated and then want to spend time with the young ones? Do you feel that we're Pretty, pretty safe to follow the new CDC guidelines regarding vac fully vaccinated parents and grandparents uh, spending time with the children? I do. I get this question a lot because I'm a pediatrician and we don't have vaccines for little kids yet. I think if, you know, the new CDC guidelines saying that you can be indoors unmasked with vaccinated people as, and one or, you know, one household of unvaccinated people, as long as no one's high risk, I, I'm excited about that guideline and I, I think it's a good one. Um, if, you know, we've been waiting a whole year to try to see um, grandparents with their kids. So it's good that we're getting to a point where the grandparents will be safe with the vaccine. And even if the kids don't have it, then they'll still be able to be with the grandparents because they're mostly low risk. What do you recommend families regarding taking their kids on airplanes and trips to other locations when they say, well, right now um, there aren't vaccines available for my children. Uh, am I safe to take them on the plane? I don't think our rates are low enough that I'm comfortable with, our, with that recommendation. I think adults that are fully vaccinated can go on planes with masks. I would still wear a mask, but I think that the rates here have are lower than at our peak, but a pretty have a pretty high plateau, and I'd be uncomfortable having my children on a plane at this point. And then masks for kids. Are you comfortable with the current guidelines of over two and be and, and have the kids wearing masks until things are shaped up when we're fully vaccinated? Yes, absolutely. Um, my youngest has been wearing a mask since he was two years old, and kids they can do it. I might have, I think that a lot of people were hesitant because they didn't think a two-year-old could keep a mask on, but they are adaptable. And if everyone around them wears a mask, they'll wear a mask. And I feel a lot safer having my kids in school when they're wearing masks and the teachers are wearing masks. Final question. The CDC has reduced the distance between children in schools from six feet to three feet. Um, what's your take? 
I think that as long as there are other mitigation measures in place, it's okay to do. Again, still masking, cohort, symptom screening, teachers wearing masks, hopefully getting all vaccinated. I think it's with like within those layers of safety, I think it's okay to do. And but I wouldn't do just that because we don't we know that that's not enough. Right. And the ventilation issues to make sure that the HVAC systems and air turnover uh, uh, is another one of the layers. I agree with you 100%. Well, uh, thank you very much, Brittany. You've really been helpful to the families of our workers. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's been a real blessing to work with you. So uh, we thought that Brittany could offer a lot of practical advice to us and talk about practical advice. Uh, Dr. Uh, Bill Adcox is the chief of police and the chief security officer for MD Anderson. He's also one of the real pioneers of threat safety science and is responsible for the care and safety of tens of thousands of people at Texas Medical Center. He's been a wonderful contributor to this program. And uh, Bill, uh, I'm going to toggle to you uh, right now to give you an opportunity to be on camera. And what I'd like to do, Bill, is just to have you react to what you've uh, heard uh, today and uh, how you might apply it to the families of the first responders, those in law enforcement and critical essential workers. Any reaction that you have to what you've heard today about the long hauler conditions? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Denham. And, and uh, you know, I, I do want to first uh, uh, thank and commend Dr. Vaughn for sharing such a, a personal experience and journey that she has and continues to go through and just the amazing effects. Um, what I would say is, is that the long hauler syndrome is, is, is very, very concerning and very important to what we do in first, as first responders. And if you think about it from the standpoint of we're going to be seeing more individuals that we're dealing with that are going to have a lot of these symptoms that are directly result, the result of the COVID infection, we have to be more cognizant about that as we look through how we can best serve them and help them. Uh, we've got to be able to take this information and, and make sure that we're watching our own families and supporting our families. Uh, one of the real issues in play here is is the emotional stress and the and the um, uh, uh, sadness and anger that may come from uh, an individual. First responders have a have a mental uh, stake where it's all about helping others and, and supporting others and and really being someone there for others. If I'm, a, if I'm a first responder, I get COVID, I get long haulers. I've got to be concerned about my longevity, uh, my ability to keep my, my, my job, if I'm going to have to be on disability and what does that mean? And so I'm, I'm going to be having to count on others to be able to help me. And then I'm going to be worrying about my employment. And we're seeing some of this stuff. I mean, one study out of Canada was showing that a lot of folks are 13 months with these symptoms, some up to 36 months. Uh, we're seeing, you know, some some police officers that are having difficulty coming back, so we're real concerned about how they how they are reacting from from a from an employee health standpoint, dealing with that emotion and what they can do for their families. Uh, the other side of it, of course, is the is the you know the disabilities and workers comp issues that have to come into play that we would all have to deal through, uh, which is important. Lastly, I think. Uh, just like when you were talking with Dr. Vaughn and, and Dr. Boats and, and, and others, um, you, you count on people to be very mentally sharp. You count on people to have the endurance to do whatever they need to do to help you and help your children. 
when you're talking about this type of long haulers and some of the major issues are fatigue, mental fog, miss, loss of, of, of thoughts, loss of memory, um, you know, there's some real problems. If you had a police officer out there that was doing his best to be back out on the streets and that something came up and they needed to, to even do something like CPR or to help somebody in a, you know, that's in a car wreck to get them out or, or even, even make an arrest or whatever, are they going to really be able to do that? Or taking a, 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 a very, very intricate complex police report where a child's injured, are they gonna remember all the details and things that they need to do to really support the family and the child and the, and the future, whether it's a prosecution or whatever. And then uh, really, if it was an unfortunate situation where you were involved with a, with a deadly force situation, are you going to be able to, to work your way through that? Are you going to be sharp enough to make a proper decision going into that type of circumstance? There are some serious consequences to this long haulers, and uh, we all need to be, be very cognizant of it and very supportive of individuals and do everything we can in our powers to, to help the medical profession to better understand it and better treat it. And so I would tell you that there's some huge impacts. All that, again, rolls into the family. It's not just the stress on the individual, but all of it that it causes to the immediate family and to the, to the friends and to the, co to the colleagues and coworkers. And so to, to us in this profession, as you know, Dr. Dem, it is very serious and it's something we're very concerned with. And so I'm, I'm very happy that and, 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 and very thankful that we're being able to bring this to light in such a fashion that you've put together here with this webinar. Thank you, Bill. Very articulate. And uh, boy, you really get us to stop and think for a minute uh, regarding our, our our first responders, how critical as Dr. Vaughn's job is. Uh, and you really have to be on top of your game. I, I think people just don't realize uh, what a great job and what a challenging job that, uh, that, that you have. We'll come back to you in, in just a minute. Uh, we'd like to hear Heather Foster now uh, respond to what uh, we've talked about uh, today and the, the, the prior information at, regarding long haul disease. Heather is a practicing nurse in Colorado. Uh, she has uh, served in the ICU on med surge floors in the community. She's also been a, a nurse infection preventionist. And I think most importantly, she's been one of our steadfast contributors to uh, the enormous body of work that uh, our group of now over 100 contributors have made. She helped us put together how to put together an isolation room at home. Hopefully, that'll be less and less frequent. But if we do have a real surge with the variants, I know uh, the work that you did, Heather, will really come, uh, uh, come to be very valuable. Um, uh, Heather, are you on camera today, or shall we just uh, have your, your picture up? Um, a picture up would be great. Thank you, Dr. Denham. Great. Thank you, Heather. We'd like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And thank you to, to all the providers who have provided us with this great information today. Um, you know, we, we're seeing some patients um, who have contracted the COVID-19 um, virus. And then weeks pass and they return to our facility. And so having this information at hand is crucial as we move forward and trying to navigate these waters, Dr. Denham. And also just, um, and I know you're gonna to touch on this briefly today, is um, just so that we can prepare as providers, um, we're, we're all so tired and, and how do we um, encourage one another as we help these patients uh, with long haulers? 
Thank you. Great segue into the next slides that we'll cover right now. We added to not only the long hauler conditions, so we've covered up to this point, we've covered what we would say in healthcare or in medical care, the pathophysiology, what's actually happening, happening at the tissue level, how best can we understand it? We can all tell that we're at the beginning of this and I'm sure over time we'll learn many things like we did with COVID that when we make a patient lay on their abdomen, we can, we can spare mm -hmm. many of them from having to go on a respirator because they, it, the oxygen exchange is better when you're laying on your abdomen than when you're laying on your back and many other things that we've learned over the course. Uh, the slide that, that, that we have up uh, right, uh, now right now is, uh, addresses the mind, body, is spirit, and reputational aspects of caregivers. And we also want to talk about recovery of our caregivers. So we've talked about recovery of long haulers. We've had a tremendous loss of, of life. I was on the phone earlier this morning with um, a, a family member uh, who, uh, who uh, had lost uh, their, uh, their in-laws. Uh, through uh, COVID and what an amazing impact that it can have just out of the blue. Uh, Heather, as we think about the mind, body, spirit, and reputation and Bill and, and Jennifer, as we think about it, we really think about the burnout in, the, in, in our healthcare population and professions are just enormous. And I think we've built up an enormous amount of care burden that we now must really uh, deal with. And you know, Heather, my article on trust, the five rights of the second victim down in the lower right-hand corner was how you and I got together when you contacted us after you had seen uh, an event and had seen the trauma that can be undertaken when we're when we have something go wrong with patients. And I think over the time of taking care of COVID, uh, our caregivers have not been able to spend the time and the energy and the love and the care and the compassion that they wish they could because of the challenges. From a, a body standpoint, um, we, we know that we've, we've, our bodies have sustained a lot of damage. And we know that workplace violence has gone up and we know that family infections have gone up. So that's another part of the care burden that we have to sustain. And then reputationally, we've had um, a lot of caregivers who spoke up regarding uh, personal protective equipment and lost their jobs or didn't were, were threatened if they don't come in to take care of patients that they'll lose their job even though they might be at risk. And, and we've had caregivers be threatened because they shared uh, the fact that one of the caregivers might have been infected and uh, they might uh, impact others. So we know that these are all tremendous challenges that we all face as we, as we head through this. And uh, Heather, I'd love to have you comment on it, but go back to Bill first and then Heather um, regarding this, these challenges. That there's a, it, it, Bill, isn't there an enormous uh, amount of pent up um, burden that we've got to carry with our first responders. They've really been through the mill over the last year, and we have to keep that in mind as we move forward. Uh, yes, that, that's very correct. Um, if you look at what COVID and the pandemic has, has done to us as a, as a country and as a people trying to deal with that, and then on top of that, all of the other issues we're seeing, I mean, we're obviously seeing, at least in our profession, uh, increases in 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 in, in uh, persons in great need. Uh, it, it has exacerbated some of the mental illness that we're seeing. Uh, uh, people that are in great need. We have also seen where 
violent crime in many, many cities is, 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 is continues to increase in, in a very rapid rate and in order for us to be able to deal with it. So you have a lot of fatigue, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, concern for, for, for the first responder himself, he, he or she doing the job and then also worried about their own uh, family members. Uh, when you're talking about having so many people having to stay home and work from home, all the issues that come with that, a lot of additional stressors, children are in our homes, uh, how do we help them? How do we do that if we still have to be working? So yes, there, there's a tremendous amount of, of things that are coming into play uh, and, and, and in terms of what COVID has brought to the table. And if COVID is not a direct uh, directly responsible is certainly going to be a, a something that adds to the issues that we're dealing with as a society and as a community. So I'll, I will, yes, this is a very serious problem that has, has many tentacles to it. And Bill, you and I've had the conversation that we believed as we started to open up, we were going to see more active shooter events. You and I had that conversation over the holidays. And then over a 30-day period, we had 45 active shooter events. And we think there may be a, a lot of pent-up anxiety, mental illness, all the provocations that can result in that. And that's why it's so important as we get back to the new normal and we undertake our work with MedTAC that we're training as many people as possible to stop the bleed, how to handle traumatic events, how to do CPR and add the layer of protection that's so important. And because um, we're kind of anxious that we may see more of these bad events. And that's why thank you, Bill, you representing our first responders and all you do and all you'll be dealing with as we reopen. Heather, I'm gonna go back to you now on, on this care burden issue. I've got the slide up of the mind, body, spirit and reputational burden that now we're carrying. Can you give our families and those that are in our community of our, uh, of our care community for coronavirus a, a little bit more of a picture of the kind of burden that you all are, are facing as, as uh, frontline caregivers in healthcare? Yeah, certainly, Dr. Denham. I, I am so grateful that I'm not in a, a high populated area and I can't imagine what some of those healthcare workers are going through. But I think one thing we need to remember is we are in a, in a field that we're, um, um, we're known to, this is our job, this is what we do. But in the same sense, this is not what we all expected <laughs> in, our, in our career when we entered the healthcare profession, um, just like it is for, I think, police officers when they're out there serving. Um, we don't expect to be called to an active shooter event amongst us as civilians. Um, and, it's, and there's a lot of trauma that I don't think um, we realize after it's said and done, we're, we're exhausted um, in our day to day. And, and I think those patients that come in for elective procedures or just for um, illnesses that are related to their, their disease processes, this is affecting them because we're so tired um, of, of, of taking care of, of these, this COVID population. They, they can be very taxing. Um, on your healthcare workers. And, and then you have the fear of not, especially where we are, we, we have um, them isolated in a room. We don't always necessarily have a visual on them. So we have to rely on monitors. And it's, it's just, it's taxing in so, in so many faucets, um, Dr. Denham. And I think 
there needs to be some, I think, debriefing. Um, how, are, how are our care workers doing? Kind of checking in and, and seeing where they're at. I think that's crucial as we move forward, especially as we start seeing more of these patients with long haulers as well. Um, I, I hope that gives some people some insight to be maybe extra patient with our, with our healthcare workers. Absolutely, and Heather, it's, I, most people would be shocked to know that nurses are the most trusted profession, and yet you have five, four to five times the amount of workplace violence. It's, right. it's so amazing. I want to give Jennifer a chance to react, and then I'm going to go to the new guidelines regarding masking and some of the CDC guidelines to just make sure some of the really most important things uh, are covered, and then we'll field questions that, that folks may have. Uh, uh, Jennifer, your thoughts about what you've heard up to this point, and then I'll cover some of the CDC guidelines, and then Jennifer will have you close. Well, wow. Thank you, Dr. Dem, for having me um, as a person to respond. Yeah, I learned a lot. Um, it kind of wasn't real comforting. It's kind of scary. I had a couple of questions, and I don't know if you can answer them or send them to our speakers, but one of them are younger people more likely to be long haulers than those haulers than the older folks? And is there any data on the oldest ages of long haulers reported? And then the other question that I have, and I'm sure you can answer this one, Dr. Denham, is do COVID tests check for every single variant at this point in time? Um, I'm not you know, sure about that. I was, I was just wondering if you can answer that for me. And, and lastly, I wanna thank all of our speakers, the ones who are present and those that are on tape. Um, thank you so much for all you're doing and for your information. It's just so important and I, Again, encourage everybody here to listen to the uh, webinars later once they're released and share it widely. Um, and lastly, Heather, thank you for all you do and all of our nurses listening. I greatly appreciate you. And um, hopefully this will be over within the next year and we can get back to normal in our country and our world. And I'll give it back to you, Dr. Denham, if you could, if you have the answers or if not, where I could go for them. Thanks. You bet. And we'll post more information regarding that. Uh, let's work from the last one that the, the RT-PCR tests uh, uh, are, are accurate uh, as far as we understand up to this point. And it's the genetic sequencing that allows you to determine whether they ha have these variants. The, the, the virus is the same. They, the virus just has... Uh, some mutations of where it attaches to the cell or where, uh, where it might escape uh, from, uh, the, from the various vaccines or the treatments uh, that we have. And the, sec the, the first question was regarding children and age. And the, the, every day we're learning more about the long COVID uh, conditions. And, and many times the young people will have a mild case, never get tested. You won't know that they've already had COVID until they develop the long haul condition. And that's what's so diabolical about this virus is that you don't have to have a really acute severe case that it, to then develop long haul. Many of the long haul folks did not realize, they thought they had allergies or they thought they had just a little cold. They got uh, COVID 
because they could tell because of the antibodies that they had had COVID, and then they developed this long haul condition. Uh, as for the ages and the breakdown of the ages, we'll look into that. We haven't seen any age breakdown in the studies that we're seeing where mainly what we're seeing is what fraction of people get COVID, move on to long haul disease. And so most of the studies are how long people have, per, uh, have the symptoms that stay with them, and then how many, which looks like 10 to 15 to 20% might develop the long haul condition and then have waves of it so that they might pick it up after the first or second wave. So we'll look into the age breakdown for you, uh, for you, Jennifer, and we'll post that on the, on, on the website. What I wanna do in just the, the last few minutes, the last four minutes that we have, and then give everybody a chance to just comment one more time is really to address um, uh, something that's pretty important. And this just came out on April 15th since our last, our last program. And if you go on our website, you'll be able to hear a longer interview with Dr. Boats regarding the airborne content or the airborne aerosol version of uh, how we get transmission. But there were three papers that came out, the Lancet, JAMA, and British Medical Journal that, that really captured many of the same things that aerosols are the dominant mode of transmission. And you'll hear in my interview of Dr. Boats, as we look at the beginning of all of this, we were so, so careful about washing all the high contact surfaces, still important, but not as important as wearing masks and the ventilated spaces. It turns out that the dominant airborne transmission is supported by long range uh, and super spreader events. Long range transmission has been seen, and these 10 specific reasons that you see uh, uh, that uh, really support the fact that there's an enormous amount of airborne transmission, and, and aerosol is the term for the less than five micron. Uh, uh, droplets that can dry out and sit in the air. And I have a dear friend who just got COVID from going in a room where someone had been who had uh, had COVID. So as you look through these 10 topics, asymptomatic in individuals account for 33 to 59%. Uh, they produce thousands of aerosol particles and few large droplets. Transmission outdoors and in well-ventilated areas is much lower. Uh, the infections we get in healthcare settings where protective measures address large droplets, but not aerosols. The viable virus has been detected in the air of hospital rooms and in the car of an infected person. Investigators have found the virus uh, in hospital air filters and building ducts. They've also seen it in animals in cages that are only connected through an air duct. Uh, they've also seen it in people that are in a same hotel that have never been in the same room together, but have been served by the same uh, HVAC air conditioning and heating systems. Uh, and there is only limited evidence that supports other means of transmission. So this is really super important uh, to know this and why masks are critically important. And when you look at the CDC guidelines, the new guidelines for those that are vaccinated, this slide actually talks about the less likely spread on fomite, which is the high contact, high contact surfaces. But I highly, highly recommend that you go to the CDC website and download this infographic that you see. And I've interviewed Dr. Boats regarding this. Uh, what and unvaccinated people can do uh, 
and, and what is more safe and what is less safe. And you can see because of this aerosol risk attending crowded outdoor events, you can see the unvaccinated people, that's pretty risky still. And why we should continue to wear masks. Many people say, well, why if I'm vaccinated, should I wear masks? And you'll hear in our discussion, you can be infected and you can be infectious and still not get symptoms and you could give it to someone else. You also don't want to get infected after you've been vaccinated and have a, res have a reservoir of the virus in your nasopharynx in your nose that is replicating because that's how, that's how mutations occur. So the best thing we can do until we get herd immunity, until there's nowhere for the virus to go and it just burns out in a population, why it's so important to continue to wear masks, whether you're vaccinated or not. And then indoor activities, you can see uh, fully vaccinated people um, really have a pretty safe activities. And so when we talk about our freedoms, our freedoms uh, uh, as, as Americans, there's nothing more freeing to us than being vaccinated, being vaccinated as quickly as we can and uh, being able to uh, move around and travel. It, is, it really is kind of the passport uh, to uh, the future for us. So what I want to do is, is, uh, is uh, just want to remind you of this. You can download the, the, uh, the graphic and you can also listen to Dr. Boats regarding these issues on our website. I'd like to have uh, uh, Chief Adcox uh, react. One last comment, whatever you wish to say, then Heather and then Jennifer, thank you so much. And if you would close us, we always like to have the voice of the patient as we close. Thank you very much, Dr. Denham. Uh, I just wanted to just close by saying thank you to everybody. You know, let's just be vigilant, wear our masks, do the things that we need to do. Just remember as the schools start to reopen and these children get back and these young adults get back, those that were bullied over the summer for the last six months to a year, that's the where, that's where they're gonna get a hold of the bully at. So uh, there's, you know, we have to be real careful at least the first few weeks of school that we are really on top of things. Uh, so let's let's just do our best. Uh, I, I, I hope to everybody, uh, you know, that you're safe and sound and you do the right things. And uh, thank you very much for for allowing me to participate. Thank you, Bill. And thank you for your steadfast support in threat safety science. And we pray that this time next year, we're going to be talking about uh, CPR and stop the bleed and, and how to take care of people uh, in the first three minutes before our first responders arrive. And we'll talk about wearing masks and doing the things we do, but we won't have as a primary situation this virus. And then Heather, uh, uh, your final thoughts, and then we'll go to Jennifer. Yes, thank you, Dr. Denham. I just want to thank everybody for providing this valuable information, um, even to, to nurses who are in the, in the trenches uh, trying to do their best. Uh, thank you for just putting some, um, some light on, on the caregiver burden, Dr. Denham, as we move forward. Thank you, everybody. Great, and thank you for all you've done to be such a great contributor to, uh, to what we've done, especially the great work on helping us figure out how to take care of people at home, how to get them to the emergency department, how to get them home. That These were very, very practical uh, insights. Uh, Jennifer, would you please close us? Thanks, Dr. Denham. And I have to second what Dr. Denham said, Heather. Thank you so much, and you as well, Chief Adcox. Thanks for everything and all of our other speakers that have been here today. Um, I just want to encourage everybody, again, to share the, the webinars, this one and others. This is really important, and I learned so much, and I hope all of you have too. Uh, continue to wear those masks. 
really, really important. I strongly have always believed in the mask and um, just thank you again and God bless and everyone be safe. Have a great week. Thank you. And as we do when we close all of our videotapes for our coronavirus team, we'll fight the good fight, finish the race and keep the faith. And hopefully next year we'll be at the new normal. Thank you all.